While our kids are leaving, let me invite you to take uh, your Bibles, the Scripture, if you have, have it with you. And I want to encourage you to turn to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12, we're going to look at another vision of the Apostle John. And um, I know that of all the books in the Bible, one of the most formidably difficult to interpret is this final book of the Bible. And if you try to come to its visions to, to, uh, to align everything perfectly, kind of like the old Rubik's Cubes back in the 80s and get all of the colors on one side, you'll find yourselves frustrated by this book because the Apostle John writes in these visions with a certain fluidity and, and it's in his writing is shifts and changes. It wasn't meant to be understood that way. That is exactly perfectly side by side like a Rubik's Cube. And so in its fluidity, he teaches us profound and uh, important spiritual truths. And it's actually one of my favorite books of the Bible because though it is difficult, it brings all of the great themes of the Old Testament beginning in Genesis to a climactic end. You sense that he has blended Genesis and Exodus and Isaiah and Daniel and Ezekiel and Zechariah all together to bring this great story of the Bible to its great conclusion. So it is a powerful book with powerful images. And we look today at, a, at another of its visions. This is chapter 12. And uh, I am actually going to read the chapter, so if you would, in honor of God's holy word, if you would stand with me, and I will read. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant, and was crying out in birth pains, in the agony of giving birth, and another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. The dragon and his angels fought back. Excuse me, I missed verse 7. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting with the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our, of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. And when the, de when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. 
The servant poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured out from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Such is the reading of God's word. You can have your seats. Father in heaven, in moments that we have, we have heard your word read. I pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, sober us in spirit, make us vigilant, aware that we do not live in a time of peace, but we are at war at all times, that we have an unseen enemy who prowls like a lion seeking to sink his teeth into our lives and our marriages and our families, that every day we are at war. And I pray, O oh God, that you would give us eyes to see that and hearts to fight the good fight. That you have called, not called us to be passive. You have not called us to live out our Christianity one day a week, one hour, one day a week. You have not given us a spirit of timidity or of passivity, but a spirit of power by which to live out this Christian life in a way that makes a difference for eternity. And I just pray, God, that you, through your word, would continue to ignite within the hearts of your people this holy passion for your son and a yearning and a longing to see his return and the restoration of all things and the realization of our great hope. May it be burned into the fabric of our souls, our hearts, our innermost being, to see his face above all, uh, all, all other things, and may we live for that, willing to die for that. So, Lord, do your work this morning in and through your word. Give your words to me for your people, and give your people and me ears to hear them. In humility of heart, in Christ's name I pray, amen. By now, most of you, if not all of you, are familiar with the oft-quoted line of, of Jim Elliott. Um, who at the age of 29 um, was speared to death by a bunch of savages in the jungles of Ecuador trying to bring the gospel to them. For those who, few who may not know the famous quote, um, the quote is, is simply this. He wrote in his journal when he was in, the sen- in his senior year at, at Wheaton, he wrote that, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And we're familiar with these words, familiar with this quote. What's easily missed is how important the future is in this quote. That he writes the first part, which speaks of present life. That a person's not a fool who gives this life, which we can't keep anyway, But the reason he can give it away is because the second part of the quote, which is all about the future, you can give away the present life because we are going to gain something we can't lose. So the present 
reality of, of offering up a life in radical surrender to Christ is really only possible if you're banking on and you believe and you're convinced that there's a life to come that you cannot lose. And his life proved the truthfulness of this statement. His life and this little tiny quote that we're so familiar with makes the point of this entire series of messages in regards to how important the future is to the present. That it's not until we are deeply convinced and we live a life of conviction that we are headed somewhere with a life that can never be taken away from us that's fuller than full, guaranteed because of Christ, that we're able to say, okay, I can give myself completely to the present and empty my cup, so to speak, for the sake of the Lord. That's how important the future is to the present And we won't be faithful in the present until we're living for that. That, again, is the purpose of these messages. It reminds me of C.S. Lewis's comment that he made in Mere Christianity, and I cited it in the very first message of the series, when he said this, and I believe it bears true through church history, namely that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. In other words, the people who accomplished the most for the sake of Christ in the present world, history, were just those who were fixated on the future. The contrary to popular belief, being fixated on our hope does not create passivity. It creates passion and courage. A willingness to offer up your life and spend your 20, 29 years um, by by giving up your life in Ecuador. Well, so far in our progress in this series on the last day and how important the future is, we have looked at how important it is, we've looked at what it entails, and this last section is on what it should do for our present life. How should the future change the present? Last week we looked at a vision of a great prostitute that goes by the name of Babylon. And one of the things that the future should do, both in judgment and salvation, is it should forge within us a fidelity and loyalty to the worship of Christ alone. That we will not drink from the cup of the world's pleasures and worship at other altars, but our hearts are to be worshipers and lovers of Christ above all else. That's what it should do. And that ultimately is what hope should do, is draw us to the beloved. Draw us to the groom as his bride. This week, we're going to look at another thing it should do to the present. Namely, it should resolve our commitment to the mission of Christ. It should catapult and compel us to be more faithful, not just to worship last week, but to mission. Because the church exists today for a purpose, a present purpose, and I believe it can be carried out with a radical resolve, only if we're looking to the life that we cannot lose. Mission. And I believe this, this vision here will take us there. Now, it may seem like a, like a weird mission text, like Revelation 12, and it may seem like that until we get to point three. But hang with me, and I think you'll see that it does and, and, and should encourage us to 
to vibrant, committed, resolved mission of, of Christ. Now, this vision centers on a woman. We just read it. A woman and a great dragon. Now, this is the third woman that we have looked at in the book of Revelation, at least in the order we're taking them. As I said, we looked at chapter 17 through 19.4, which looked at a great woman who was beautiful, but find, found out she's a prostitute, seeking to seduce the world with her pleasures and with her wealth. And she is contrasted to the beautiful bride of Christ in chapters 21 and 22 of Revelation, who's, who's adorned and prepared by God for the groom, namely Christ. So you have a prostitute and you have a bride. So here we come to a third woman, another woman. But I don't believe she's a different woman. If chapter 21 of Revelation gives us a picture of what the bride will be, then chapter 12 gives us a picture of the bride as she is, attacked and persecuted. That the woman of this chapter is nothing less than a symbol for God's faithful community. And one of the things that this vision does is it pulls back the veil of what is seen with our physical eyes and enables us to see the world through spiritual eyes. And what we see throughout this entire vision is that the spiritual world as we know it is at war. All the way through, you sense war, 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 war between the dragon and the woman, between the dragon and the child, and the dragon later on in the woman. And to give you just a sense of that, and by the way, that is, that is the first thing that we learn from this vision on a very broad level about the framework or the context of the mission of God's church. Namely, that our mission is set in the context of a great war, and you see it come to light in these text, the text of this vision. So we see conflict or war between the woman who's pregnant and this dragon who is later referred to as the serpent, the devil, Satan, in case you don't know who he is. So that we see him reading in the middle, and the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. These images are pretty graphic that there's a dragon standing before a pregnant woman waiting for birth, and then he's going to consume the child, which is an obvious reference to Christ. Not only is there conflict between this dragon and the woman and her child, but we look up into a scene of heaven. Excuse me, I've got to go back one here. And we see that there's war in heaven as well. We see that now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. There was no longer any place for them in heaven. So we have a woman at war with the dragon, dragon trying to consume a child. We have angels fighting demons in heaven. And once he's thrown down, we see a, fer a, fero a ferocious attack of, of the woman and her offspring. So we read, and again, you just get the sense that it's full of an intense battle and struggle. It says, when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness 
to the place where she is to be nourished for a time, times, and half a time. By the way, that time, times, and half a time, as well as the 1260 days, I believe is Old Testament shorthand for the period, a definite period of persecution, which many believe, as do I, is the age between the first advent of Christ and the second. But she will be nourished during that time. Verse 15, the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with the flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. The whole thing is about war. And in particular, the beginning and end, it's about this dragon, or Satan, serpent's attack of God's people. That tells us the context in which we live, and that is present reality, is that once a person comes to faith, you're put on a hit list. That he wants to devour God's people. But you'll notice that at each point, the dragon is frustrated. That he tries to get at the woman, pursues her, but two wings are given to her. Now, this is symbolic imagery. This is not literal. And she flies away. At another point, he pours water out of his mouth. But the earth comes to her aid. And I believe the spiritual truth that that teaches is that while the dragon may be able, while Satan and his kingdom may be able to spill the blood of God's people, that he cannot get at the souls of God's people. Because God has promised to sustain and nourish and protect his people. Not a single person who genuinely believes will be lost. That's the imagery of the eagle's wings and and the earth coming to the help, is that God will ultimately protect his people spiritually. Now, he never promises to, to, to protect us physically. The dragon has spilled the blood of, blood of God's people since the time of Abel, and he's continued to do it through the ages. But we ultimately rely on the fact that God holds us strong, and in that we trust. But the point of this vision is that our mission and our lives and our Christian ministry is done in the context of this great war. Now, if every one of us in here who calls himself a Christian really believed that and that saturated into your soul in the same way that a soldier in Afghanistan knows right now that he's in harm's way, we would be different We would simply be sobered and vigilant that every day you wake up is a day in which you enter into and engage in battle. Is, and is every day that you wake up is a day in which someone wants to bite you into your life and into your soul. That would make a difference. So that's kind of first part, broad. But the great thing about this image is that we have a champion. And that is the second part as it relates to our mission. 
Namely, that our mission is based on the decisive conquest of Christ, Jesus. That we fight based upon his, his conquest of the dragon. Initially, at the opening part of the vision, you'll notice the focus of the dragon is not really the woman. It's this child she carries. I mean, it pictures a dragon, a very ugly and carnivorous creature, standing before a pregnant woman, the place where a doctor should be, ready to consume and devour this child. In other words, his entire focus is on this child. There's a reason for that. Because the devil, the serpent, the dragon has known since the very beginning, since God first declared it in the Garden of Eden after the fall of our first mother and father, when he told the serpent, he says, an offspring of the woman is going to come and bruise your head. That's a way of saying, at some point, a child will be born who will destroy you. Or to put it in different terminology, at some point, a child is going to be born who will slay the dragon. And he's known that through the centuries. Which is why he's standing before the pregnant woman ready to consume the one who's promised to slay him. He wants to completely thwart the purposes and predictions of God. He wants to take this child out. That's why he's fixated on this child. And the Gospels of Matthew and Luke and John record that he did just that. So even when Jesus was born, the dragon moves or the devil moves in the heart of a king by the name of Herod who slaughters an entire village of children trying to annihilate this child, but misses. Then he comes to Jesus out in the desert for 40 days and tempts him, trying to derail him from ministry and doing what he's been called to do. That the same dragon or Satan moves in the heart of one of his followers named Judas to sell him for 30 pieces of silver. And he does it. And then in the kind of climactic act of the dragon, he brings together uh, an unholy conspiracy between the authorities of Rome and the authorities of Jewish religion to crucify him. That's the spiritual nature of warfare taking place in very tangible ways. And ultimately, Jesus dies. In other words, for a moment, it looks as if the dragon has succeeded. He's devoured the child. He's killed the Christ. And if there were such things as parties, such things as parties in hell, I would venture to say that there was some screaming and partying going on on Good Friday. But it would have been the shortest party in hell because he didn't stay dead. Because our champion, the one God sent, could not be held by death for more than three days. And so he came to life. I would imagine what broke the party up was the rolling away of the stone. 
And all of a sudden, all of hell starts to tremble like he's alive again. The slayer of the dragon is alive again. And then the last part of this, although it doesn't include his death, it speaks of it later, his blood. The last part, he's caught up to God and to his throne. What I want you to see is that when the devil devoured Christ on the cross, he sealed his own doom. He thought he was destroying his enemy. In fact, he was helping his enemy. Because the moment Jesus died, the entire war, heaven and hell, changed. The center point that changed the world and the universe and heaven itself was the death of Jesus and his resurrection. Which is why at this child's being caught up to God and his throne, Things change in heaven. Michael wins. He's cast down. And heaven kind of rejoices. And it sings. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, and this is the voice of the redeemed, because they're singing our brothers. Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. They've come in the death and resurrection of Jesus because the power of the devil has been thrown down. And the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. Now just follow me here for a second. Up to the point of Good Friday and Jesus' sacrificial death, the devil was making accusations. The most vicious, the most shrewd, prosecuting attorney, eternity heaven has ever seen. Bringing up all of the flaws and all of the imperfections of God's people. Saying in a manner of speaking, God, how can you not condemn David to hell because he committed adultery and lied? How can you tolerate and be just at the same time your people's imperfections and their lying and their, their lack of love for each other? And he brought up all the dirt and the dirty laundry against God's people in his throne room and in his courtroom. But the day that Jesus died, everything changed. Because the charges of the crimes we committed, the conviction of the crimes we've committed, and the death sentence of the crimes we had been committed were completely satisfied in the death of Jesus. So there are no more accusations to be made. No more finger pointing. No more imperfections pointed out because everyone is covered, 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 pardoned, absolved. You can't bring that up anymore. It's been paid. And in that sense, the dragon lost all authority over the souls of God's people. And it ticked him off. So, our mission, we're going to get to that, our mission is grounded in the fact, it's based in the fact that our champion has already won. No more accusations. Who then can bring a charge against God's elect? No one remains. All your stuff is not going to be accused 
You're not going to be accused of it any longer. But that is the ground. And it's his victory that we stand on. The victory of the Son of God who we wait for. Creator, Redeemer, and someday coming King who will finish, who will finish his work and completely obliterate this thing called the dragon, the devil, the serpent. Consigns him later in the book to a place called the Lake of Fire and he will have no influence whatsoever. But, and this come, brings us to our mission. If reality as we know it, according to this vision, is war, and if the foundation of our battle is the fact that we fight an already defeated enemy. That's the point. We fight a defeated enemy. He's already had his head crushed. No more authority. Then what is it we're supposed to do? Because I believe, based upon what's said here, specifically in verse 11, that we still have to fight. That there's still battles to be bled over and in. Verse 11, our mission. It says that, And they conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. You know, as a bit of an aside, you know, it's amazing how many people love to fight. And guys play sports because they love competition. It's a form of fighting. Little kids spend hours on Halo because they love to fight. All of this surreal and fictitious fighting. When there's a real battle right around us that we should be wholly and completely engaged in. But our battle is not with weapons, guns, knives, and tanks. That our mission is to conquer through our enduring testimony to Christ. Let me say that one more time. That our mission as a church, as Christians, is to conquer through our enduring testimony to Jesus. Look at that verse one more time. And they, that they there refers to the church, Christians, followers of Jesus, you and me. They have conquered him, talking about the dragon, the devil, the serpent. And then he goes on to list two things. The first and the foundation of our conquest is the blood of the lamb. That was point two. He has already brought the crushing blow to the head, and we stand in his defeat of the dragon. But there's a second thing there. Also, by the word of their testimony. And put that together. They have conquered by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. So as the church verbalizes the testimony as to their faith in Christ, what Christ has done, and the person of Christ, conquering is taking place. And that's what a testimony is. It's an affirmation of truth. The affirmation that we believe 
An affirmation that we believe what Christ has done as the Creator, as Redeemer, and coming King. And we affirm the truth that He is the sovereign King of the universe before whom every knee shall bow. That is our testimony. And as that testimony goes forward, conquest happens. Gates fall. Souls are sprung from the clutches of this dragon who wants every single soul he can get. But it is by the word of their testimony. And it gives the extent there at the end, even to the point that they would die for this testimony. They loved not their lives even unto death. That's how important the upholding of the testimony of Christ was for them. Or in a manner of speaking, they were willing to give what they could not keep in maintaining this testimony to gain what they could not lose. They're willing to die for this word of testimony. That tells us a lot about the nature of our mission. It is primarily a verbal one. A testament, whether it's written or spoken, to our faith in what Christ has done and who He is. And as that testimony goes forward, we see the devil fall. Now I believe that that truth, and that's the single application point of this message. Life is war. Christ is the champion He's already defeated. So we stand against a defeated enemy. And yet, our part is to wake up each day and fight the good fight. And the part, a big part of that fight is verbally testifying to our faith in what Christ has done and who He is. And as I said, I believe that is a timely word for God's people in this generation, this culture, in this society. Because, as I hope you know, and if you don't, Open your eyes, read the papers, and listen to the news. That we live in a culture which is increasingly antagonistic to our message. It's increasingly hostile to our message, which centers on a king who is crucified for his people. Listen to me. The unbelieving world is not antagonistic toward our works. The unbelieving world is not antagonistic or hostile to our works of compassion, kindness, and love. I remember hearing this in, the, in, a, in a message by Martin Lloyd-Jones who talked about why Christianity must suffer when it speaks. And he made the statement, and it's so true. He says, if we feed the hungry and clothe the naked and we care for the poor and we educate the underprivileged and that's all we do, the unbelieving world will clap their hands and applaud us. They do right now in places where this is happening. Which is all well and good. We are to love our enemies. We are to love people tangibly, compassionately, humbly, and sacrificially. But, if 
that's all we do, then we're simply loving people to hell. There must be communication, verbal communication, or you can write it, that's verbal too, as to what Christ has done and who he is. It must go forth. And where we are silent or we feel the pressure of culture not to speak, then conquest is not taking place. The unbelieving world is not antagonistic towards our works. They're antagonistic to our verbalizing the name of Christ. (laughs) Thanks, Ron. (laughs) That is a pressure, I hate to say, on the church. This cultural antagonism to our message, not to our works. That is coming from outside the church and also inside the church. There is a sentiment that says, you know what? Let's just love people. And I italicize the word just. Yes, love people. It's part of the greatest command. Love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. I get it. But we can't just love people. There's this quote by St. Francis of Assisi that's notoriously popular, and it's a good quote. But it's been used by some to teach, let's just love people. He wrote this. He said, preach the word, and if necessary, use words. I get what he's trying to say. It's a powerful truth. We ought to be living out our lives in a way that gains a hearing. The people say they believe something different. They live differently. Yes, amen. But I would really like to erase those middle two words if necessary. It's not if it's necessary. It is necessary. So preach the word with your life, but by all means, preach it with your lips. It must be communicated. They conquered by the word of their testimony. The enemy doesn't want you to speak. Because when you do, he loses ground. Live it, but speak it. Now I know that scares people, because immediately what people think of when they think of speaking is they think formal acts of evangelism. You know, when you've prayed for a neighbor and God gives you an opportunity and you sit down with them over dinner or at the table and you lay out the gospel logically and compellingly and then you are asking them to believe what you've taught. That is a formal laying out of the gospel, evangelism. Some people are really good at it. Some of us aren't so good at it. Doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. We should pray for opportunities and be ready in a moment to talk about Christ as creator, redeemer, and coming king. But that's not the only way we testify. We we really should, I mean, you can testify in whispers and and in shouts. Um, You can testify in conversations. And I want to encourage you with something that has been encouraging to me and I've been trying to practice myself. 
One of the ways to testify to Christ is just to be yourself consistently. What I mean by that is this. Is that if Christ is alive in your life and he is woven into the fabric of your marriage and your kids and, and your heart and your thinking, then naturally you're going to talk about it. I mean, when, when, if, if you get in a conversation with me for more than 10 minutes, you'll eventually hear about my wife and kids because they're important to me. They're part of me. It's not hard for me. It's automatic. And I've never heard anybody say to me, will you stop talking about your kids? And if they did say that, I have to say, well, well that's me. That's who I am. What I'm saying is that we have conversations all the time with believers in which we give God credit for a sunrise. Or, man, I had a great time in Ephesians 1 this morning in a little passage that said that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. It was the high point of my day. We're willing to say that to a believer. But then we get into the realm of the, of the unbeliever and, and your coworker says, so what's the best thing that happened to you today? And you're searching for something because, heavens, I can't say that I had an amazing time with God in Ephesians 1. So what can I conjure up? I had a great bowl of Wheaties this morning. I say, just be consistent. If you're going to talk about the Lord with your believing friends and just in, in kind of indirect ways, like, man, I had an amazing sunset last night. God just did amazing things. Why not say that in the context of, of unbelievers? Just be the same. Give him credit. And I think sometimes that's more winsome to the unbeliever than the directive, assertive approach of evangelism. Now, both are needed. But just testify, hey, God's alive. He's good in my life. How was your day today? God's good, man. Give credit to that. You're testifying. All too often we, and I'll include myself in this, give in to the chameleon effect. It adapts itself to its environment. In a believer's environment, now I can speak freely about Christ that I love. All of a sudden, we're in an unbelieving environment, but we switch our language. And we subtract out our faith. There's no reason that should happen. It's part of who we are. Just, just be yourself. If Christ is alive in you, and you love Him, and you're growing in Him, just be yourself. And you'll find yourself testifying all the time. People will hear and go, man, that person has like God like spilling out of their lives all the time. And in that way, we testify. By the word of their testimony. By the word of our testimony. In both formal and conversational ways. I just want to tell you, be the same, church. Do not let the dragon cover your mouth or make you live a double-faced life. Be the same, in season, out of season, with Christians, with non-Christians. Just be yourself. And in this way, we fight the fight. In this way, we engage in war. Listen, today and now, this time is not a time of rest for us. Our rest is the future. Right now, we fight. And we fight with life, but mostly with our words is what brings down his territory. So I want to encourage you. You have no reason not to give it your all. To give what you cannot keep. 
to gain what you can't lose. You can be reckless in your Christianity, properly qualified. I hope you do. Just be yourself and testify to Christ who created you, loved you, died for you, rose for you, and one day is going to adorn you with glory. Be courageous, my friends. Church, let us speak the truth. Father, I ask for courage. I beg for courage for all of us here, not only to live our Christian life out in a way that we gain a hearing for the gospel, but also courage enough to speak in natural ways of conversation as well as times that are a little more uncomfortable where we just lay out the gospel for someone to hear. But by all means, Lord, please do a work of your grace and just raise up for yourself a generation of people who do conquer by the word of their testimony even to the point of shedding blood. We pray this in Jesus' name, the name of our Savior and King.